0: The world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Andrew Allen, president, CEO, and co-founder of Gritstone Bio. A full-spectrum look at how cancer starts and cancer treatments have developed, and what next-generation treatment means today with Gritstone's work in colorectal cancer. And wait for it, the next generation of COVID vaccines. And now, Dr. Andrew Allen. Dr. Allen, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks very much, Maura. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, when someone has an organ transplant, we all know now that they'll be on immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of their lives. What is less known after a successful transplant is that patients will often develop a skin cancer. What's happening there? How frequently does it happen?
1: It's actually remarkably common, uh, and there's a particular type of skin cancer that uniquely seems to be uh, common in these patients. The good news is you know generally you you see it early and you can cut it out and deal with it that way, very kind of old school um but it, you know it's it's not a nice thing to have happen, of course, and occasionally it can spread, and that of course is is disastrous so uh, it's a real problem, and what we think is going on is that every day we're subject to forces trying to mutate our dna and this is as simple as sunlight right ultraviolet radiation damages our dna Uh, and all kinds of carcinogens in the environment can try and uh, damage our dna as well and our body obviously has developed a whole host of ways of dealing with dna damage and one of the ways that our our bodies can deal with it is actually to acknowledge that occasionally a cell is going to go awry and and start proliferating in a cancerous or cancer-like fashion. And our immune system has developed ways of recognizing those cancerous cells and eliminating them. And so probably often, maybe as much as every day, who knows, really, that happens to all of us, right? We get these little malignant cells forming, just one cell somewhere in our skin, let's say, and our immune system deals with it, kills that cell. It's gone. We never know about it. That's just our body at work. And we only realize in, in retrospect that that's going on because when I blunt my immune response by being treated with these potent immunosuppressive drugs, all of a sudden I've, I've shut shut off that pathway and now the cancers can form in a way that they didn't hitherto. That's kind of the insight that was gleaned when we made this observation about skin cancers in transplant patients.
0: Now, could this be any cancer?
1: It seems to be particularly uh, a type of skin cancer, interestingly, Um, But just to bring another example in, of course, uh, in the early days of HIV infection, when there were were no good treatments, those patients developed other malignancies, um, particularly Kaposi's sarcoma, of course, famously, um, which is another manifestation of how immune suppression, in this case, not caused by drugs, but caused by a virus that destroyed uh, your T cells, a key part of your immune system, that immune suppression led to a different kind of cancer, also on the skin, interestingly, because Again, the skin is one of our sort of barriers, right? It's the, it's the first port of call for, for, for bad news, as it were. And so that's probably why it particularly seems to be affecting the skin. But, you know, it was interesting. It was in a very different form there than, than we see with uh, immunosuppression. But the net effect is the same, an increased risk of skin cancers uh, that can be hard to deal with.
0: And, of course, there are so many people today who have become immunosuppressed. That's right. Happens there, too?
1: Uh, it does indeed. Yep, it does indeed. But it, it's, you know, transplant patients are the most heavily immunosuppressed. So they typically get cocktails of drugs, and therefore their immune responses are the most compromised, which is why they're at the highest risk. So there does seem to be a relationship that the stronger the immunosuppression, the greater the reduction of my immune response, the greater the cancer risk.
0: Now let's get a bigger picture here, generally, about the cancer situation. Uh, you've often said, first treatment, uh, localized possibly with surgery, and then on to prevent. Give us the big picture here.
1: Okay, so let's let's step back a little bit and here think about that big picture. So cancers are formed when our DNA is mutated, and the mutation changes the sequence of proteins in our cells, and some of those altered proteins have growth-promoting properties. And that's really what triggers the onset of a cell that starts proliferating in an uncontrolled fashion. So the idea to sort of have in your mind is that there are lots of mutations that happen, most of which are functionally irrelevant. But if you're unlucky, you're gonna get a change that just happens to turn on an important protein that now promotes growth in an uncontrolled fashion. And that's essentially what a cancer is, of course. it's It's a cell population that starts growing uncontrollably. And as we've discussed, our immune system actually can recognize that. And the reason for that is that our immune response is designed to recognize foreign. Anything foreign is assumed by your immune system to be some kind of pathogen, like a virus, a bacterium, a fungus, whatever. And it, it's designed to eliminate those foreign invaders. And this is the interesting um Battle that goes on between a tumor cell that is trying to, not trying—that's the wrong uh, term—a tumor cell that, that uh, stochastically randomly is, is proliferating, and our immune response, which is trying to control that immune uh, that proliferating cell population, and through Darwinian evolution, tumor cell that accumulates a set of mutations that enables it to hide from the immune system, is a tumor cell population that will successfully grow in that person. And so there is this arms race between the tumor and your immune system. And most of the time, happily, our immune system wins. But occasionally, we get unlucky. And as you get older, the chances that you're going to kind of lose that battle obviously increase just because there's been more time uh, for that battle to be, uh, to be lost. And so when we, when we lose the battle, it means that the tumor has somehow learned to evade your immune response, and, and a, a cancer forms. And obviously, as you said, uh, we, we think about cancers uh, in sort of reverse order. The, the ones that we as drug developers t- tend to start trying to treat are the ones that have grown and spread, and the patient is now, now has metastatic or widespread disease, and we're trying to treat that with immunotherapy. And you know, there's been a lot of progress recently, uh, particularly in certain types of cancers, where we were able to activate the immune system and kill those tumor cells. And sometimes that effect is dramatic, which we can discuss. And if we're successful in the metastatic setting, then the obvious place to go next is to an earlier stage tumor. And typically that means the tumors which are picked up when they're localized. Uh, so a tumor, for example, in breast or lung, which is detected often using imaging. And it seems to be localized you know, to one part of, the, of one breast or one lobe of a lung with no evidence of distant metastasis. And often we'll just treat those with surgery, just literally cut out the tumor. And sometimes we'll give chemotherapy to try and eliminate any remaining cells. And you can use immunotherapy in that setting as well. And actually, just this week, there's been another set of approvals by the FDA of some of these uh, important drugs that promote the immune response in this setting, in the the so-called adjuvant setting around surgery to increase long-term survival. So that's the sort of second step. And then the third step, which at the moment is is uh, the fantasy, but of course we hope to make it reality, is to think about actually preventing cancers. Uh, that's obviously a, a more difficult problem, but it's tractable uh, and something that, that uh, you know, I think as we put our future-gazing hats on, that's very much in mind.
0: Now tell us what you've observed from Gritstone and what you're doing.
1: So at Gritstone... We really follow the the science that has been advancing slowly over the last 20 years or so. Um, when I first moved to the United States um, and, I, and I moved to the Bay Area, I began working at a company called Chiron, which is one of the original biotech companies you know, formed in, in the 80s. And Chiron had the first approved cancer immunotherapy, which was a drug called interleukin 2 or proleukin. And this was a, um, it's a natural molecule, and we made it as a recombinant protein. So it was one of the first recombinant proteins that was developed and approved. And what it does is to activate your immune system, and specifically it activates T cells. And T cells is, is the part of the immune system that's designed to recognize abnormal cells. And interleukin-2 really drives your T cells crazy. Um, and so everybody get, who received this drug at, at a high dose Um, got pretty sick because it causes wild T cell activation. You think about your worst flu, and then multiply that by about 100, where not only do you feel awful with, with fevers, but you actually get fluid pouring into your lungs. So you need some respiratory support. It goes into your brain because so your brain basically stops functioning for a short period of time. It's a really active drug. Everybody got sick, but about 4% of patients were cured. And I use that word carefully. These are patients with metastatic disease. So they had tumors that had riddled their brains and lungs and livers, who ordinarily would have literally weeks left to live. Some of those patients, this small group of around 4%, developed magical responses where the tumors just melted away and the patient then stopped all treatment and was completely healthy a decade later. I mean, so this is cure. And so it was the first immunotherapy. It was a very, very challenging drug to use, of course, for the reasons that are obvious. But the allure of why to use it was clear, that if you're a 40-year-old with metastatic melanoma in a young family, you will roll those dice. Even though the odds are clearly not in your favor, 4% chance of cure is is a chance you'll you'll strive for. So that was kind of the the beginning, really, of, of, uh, of our industry when it comes to cancer immunotherapy and i worked there and it was it was to be honest it was pretty frustrating because we just didn't really know how these drugs worked and i arrived and i was trying to develop you know the uh, you know the strategy for how to continue understanding these drugs and, and the tools we had were just so rudimentary so I actually, to my eternal shame, I think I sort of, I turned apostate and I, when that company was acquired, I I moved to a a different area of cancer drug development, the the new field of targeted therapeutics, which was a different kind of um, enterprise with different challenges. And there's actually been much more tractable. Um, But the targeted therapeutics generally don't cure people. And so at the back of one's mind was that, that niggling feeling of, you know, If only we could just do better with our immunotherapy. Unfortunately, there were people more more principled than I who actually kept going with immunotherapy and famously developed some drugs that activate T cells in a more nuanced fashion. And the famous drugs now are the antibodies that bind to a a particular protein on T cells called PD-1. Um, And these are drugs that are widely used now called Keytruda and Obdivo and Ticentric. There's several of them now. And these are the drugs that activate T-cells, so they do fundamentally a similar thing. But they do it in a more nuanced fashion, and they seem to somewhat selectively activate T-cells that recognize key targets on tumor cells, and they're less toxic. And so instead of everybody getting wildly sick and 4% being cured... What we're seeing, particularly in melanoma, uh, you know, the, the relatively common skin cancer, is that the toxicity actually is very manageable now, um, and we've got pretty good ways of handling it. It's not nothing, but it's it's generally manageable with a very low mortality rate. Um, but the effectiveness is much greater, and now we're seeing seven-year survival statistics that we really only dreamed of, you know, fifteen years ago where seven-year survival now for patients is sort of in the, let's say, 50-ish percent zone. Um, it used to be less than 10%. So really profound impact. And some of those patients probably are cured. You know, They are, appear to be disease-free off of all drugs. So that was a huge step forward for the field. And that happened around a decade ago, right? The first sort of approvals were in the 2013-2014 timeframe. And you know, I was looking at this thinking, what what can we learn here that that might help us take another step forward? Because the reality is that those drugs, magnificent though they are, they still mostly work in a minority of patients with common solid tumors. You know, the common tumors that that kill the majority of, of people are these tumors such as lung cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, breast and prostate. Those are the big five. And really, it's only lung cancer that has really adopted these, these drugs because of clear efficacy. There, there's some minority use in some subsets of these other tumor types, but most of them basically don't, don't yet receive those drugs as routine because they haven't really shown value. And so wh- what we learned um, as we watched the this, this, this scientific space is a team at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York showed in the end of 2014 that when patients responded to these classes of drugs... They seemed to do so because their T-cells were recognizing a particular target on the surface of tumor cells, and it was a mutated uh, target, a mutated protein. And for me, that, it all made sense, because now you have something that's foreign, that your immune system is designed to recognize, and you've got a drug that seems to be selectively promoting T-cell attack on those foreign cells. It all kind of fits the, the paradigm. And what was clear was that many patients, maybe most patients, don't have those T cells when they present in the clinic. So you can look in their tumors and in their blood, and they don't seem to have T cells that recognize those mutated targets. And so the idea for gridstone was born, which was let us take patients who have these uh, so-called cold tumors where there's no immune recognition, and let's figure out which of the mutations create targets at step one. And then step 2 we'll administer those mutant proteins within a vaccine to generate the T-cell response that those patients need. And if we do that, hopefully, we can expand the benefits of, of this immunotherapy to many, many more patients. So that was the idea behind Gridstone.
0: Well, that is a pretty wild idea. Because, <laughs> <laughs> no, first of all, if you're immunosuppressed, you don't have a lot of T-cells being produced. And T-cells are specific. There's T-cells after this, T-cells after that. You have to have the right ones. And you might have to have many, many different kinds of T-cells to fight a cancer, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a big challenge for sure, uh, which is why it's taken us eight years to get to this point (laughs) where we're about to actually turn a card in a randomized clinical trial and see whether we really are delivering efficacy. So that moment is at hand, which is very exciting, daunting, um, but exciting. And you're absolutely right. It's it's a complex field. And so just to, to drill to the one layer down, when you sequence a tumor, and of course, let's be clear, you couldn't do this more than 10 years ago because we couldn't sequence tumors. We just didn't have that technology. So that was one of the you know completely independent technological advances that enabled us to do this work that we're doing, so we're the beneficiaries of all that great work uh, from the sequencing community. So now we can sequence tumors, and typically what happens if you if you sequence a typical colon cancer, for example, you'll find maybe one hundred and fifty, maybe two hundred different mutations in the DNA that change the protein sequence of that cell. And as I said, many of those changes are probably functionally completely irrelevant. Okay, it just changes an, uh, a little bit of a protein in a way that just doesn't matter. But some of them probably change it in a way that really creates a beautiful target for your immune system. And so the question for us was like, which of the mutations create good targets? And we solved that problem using the now well-known well artificial intelligence, or more specifically deep learning. And so what we did was to take large numbers of human tumor samples identify the little uh, altered protein fragments on the surface of the tumor cell, sequence the DNA and RNA of those same cells, and use deep learning to figure out the genomic features. It's a mathematical problem. You figure out the genomic features that are associated with surface display of that mutated protein fragment. It's a very elegant application of, of deep learning mathematics. And interestingly, um, with the large language models that are now obviously being used in chat GPT-4, for example, we are developing now a better predictive model because the, the, the basically the mathematics is smarter. It helps us understand the relationships between the different data points better so that we can do better, more accurate predictions. So that whole body of work has been going on since we started the company. It was literally the very first thing that we did because we knew that this was the first problem to solve, and that is uh, it's an exciting area. And there's more to be done, which we can talk about. But the, the next step, of course, was to take those those candidates, those mutant proteins, and put them into a vaccine. And that sounds easy, but actually, most vaccines don't generate really strong killer T cell responses, and that's what you need, we think, in in cancer. And so we had to develop a different set of vaccine vectors. And we did that. uh, And so we deliver these mutated proteins in a particular format that seems to drive your immune system wild and gets a really strong T cell response, which is probably what you need in order for good things to happen.
0: Okay. So you're not giving us the T cells. You're getting our immune system to generate all of these T cells. Is that going to work in someone immunosuppressed? Is your immune system still there?
1: Well, I think the answer is yes. And the reason I say that is not just hope, but actually data. So we ran a a phase one uh, study, the first in human study, using this approach. What we showed is that in colon cancer, when you start, the tumor just looks nasty. It is obviously full of malignant cells growing away. And very little evidence of immune recognition. There's, there's no T cells infiltrating the tumor. There's no markers of inflammation. It looks like this tumor really has successfully escaped recognition by the immune system and is just growing in an unmolested fashion, which is great for the tumor, bad for the patient. So that's where we start. And when we look in the blood, we can't find evidence of T cells that recognize any of those mutated targets. So we we vaccinate the the, the patient using uh, the, the technologies I've described and using these potent T-cell-producing vaccines. And what we then see in, in, as we analyze the, the consequences of that vaccination, first of all, we see T-cells in the blood that recognize those mutant targets, which weren't there before. So we've got induction of the right T-cell population. Then we've been able to show that those T-cells traffic into the tumors And of course, that's important, because if they just live in the blood, but they can't access the tumor, then who cares? So showing that they can make it into the tumor was the next important step, and we've shown that. Thirdly, they then induce inflammation in the tumor. And we believe that that obviously is a necessary condition for tumor destruction. And fourthly, we have evidence of tumor cell destruction. And we can measure tumor cells uh, somewhat directly. By, by looking for mutant proteins in the blood, interestingly, or mutant DNA, actually, specifically, in the blood.
0: Because the tumor cell has sort of exploded, if you will. Exactly. And it, fragments of it are in the blood, you can see them. That's right. And you should see a lot more of them than you might see normally.
1: There's a whole industry now of measuring mutant DNA in blood. And it, obviously, as you think about it, that can be used for diagnostic purposes, and it can be used to monitor therapy.
0: I've been speaking with Andrew Allen President, CEO, and co-founder of Gritstone Bio. We've been talking about how it's possible to tell that a cancer treatment is effective against a tumor, as there's evidence of tumor fragments in the blood.
1: There's a whole industry now of measuring mutant DNA in blood, and it, obviously, as you think about it, that can be used for diagnostic purposes, and it can be used to monitor therapy. So. That's a very useful technology for us to be able to to deploy. Again, we're just benefiting from work that others have done. And so it seems to just pretty linearly correlate with the amount of tumor cells that you have. Right, The amount in your blood is correlated to the, the number of tumor cells. It kind of makes sense. And so what we've seen is that in roughly half of the patients that we treated, we saw a reduction in the amount of mutant DNA in the blood. And that seemed to be associated with extended overall survival. Now, this is all done in advanced disease in a what's called a single-arm study, meaning everybody's getting the treatment. So we don't have a control group. So any, any inference that maybe we're prolonging survival is, is, has to be sort of heavily caveated, right? That you don't know that until you show it in a proper randomized study. So what we did, of course, is to then move to a proper randomized study. And that's a study that now is close to finishing. Um, it's a randomized study of just about 100 subjects with newly diagnosed metastatic colorectal cancer, half of whom are receiving immunotherapy and half of whom are just receiving standard chemotherapy. And we're going to see whether we have an impact on that CT DNA, as it's called, or um, uh, blood-based mutant DNA marker. That's the the, uh, endpoint that we're measuring as the first or so-called primary endpoint in the trial. And we'll get preliminary data from the study in the first quarter of next year. So very close now. And we have a control group, obviously. So here you can say, all right, well, how many patients did I see a reduction in the the test arm where they're getting the immunotherapy? And compare that with the control arm who just got standard chemotherapy. And obviously what we're looking for is a nice big difference there that should then lead to a difference in survival based on everything that we know. And of course, we'll be following these patients for survival as well. So this is an important study that, that, opens the door to this new uh, wave of immunotherapy in tumors that today typically don't get treated with immunotherapy because it doesn't really work. So it's an exciting, exciting moment for us.
0: Now, you described how that early treatment with interleukin-2 was like 10 times the worst flu you ever had or 100 times the worst flu you ever had to get that 4% chance that maybe this will cure you you got to ask, if you're on this kind of a vaccine, what's the response? How How do you feel? Is it Is it pretty terrible?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the vaccine itself um, is like a COVID shot. And so that's probably the relevant uh, analog, because I think most of us now know exactly what that feels like. Um, you know, it's not the best day of your life, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's manageable, right? It's Typically, it's 24 to 48 hours of feeling sort of under the weather, there's a beautiful English word that I like, feeling ordinary, um, because, of course, we all expect to feel exceptional most days, right? But but having a, having a COVID shot makes you feel rather ordinary for a couple of days, but then you shake it off and you move on. So that's the effect of the vaccine. Um, now, we do give it with these other immune stimulatory drugs that have their own set of, uh, of toxicities. But as I said, they're pretty well managed now. Um, and so the cocktail should be much, much better tolerated. So far, it certainly looks that way. Uh, compared to some of those early drugs like interleukin-2. So this is a definite advance from a toxicity point of view, and obviously, hopefully, a major advance from an efficacy point of view.
0: Now, we know if we have uh, an MNRA COVID vaccine, uh, they say, okay, it's going to be good for this amount of time. Are you expecting to have to v- just to revaccinate cancer patients? What's What's the idea there?
1: Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um the way we think about tumors, increasingly, is to think of them as like a family tree. That there is there's one cell that begins the whole miserable disease. So there's one particular cell that just randomly picks up the constellation of DNA mutations that turns it into a cancerous cell. And that cell obviously starts proliferating, as we've, as we've discussed. And typically, one of the features of a cancer cell is that the the DNA becomes a little bit unstable, and so it starts to pick up more mutations and This is why we have the idea of a family tree you've got that that original progenitor cell and then there'll be one population that picks up a different additional mutation, and a different branch of the tree picks picks up an alternative additional mutation, and then there are sub branches of those branches and so on and so forth and obviously this gets to the design of the vaccine. So it's actually a really interesting question. What you want in the vaccine is to kill every tumor cell. And if I want to kill every tumor cell, then I want to include mutations that are found in every tumor cell, which means I want mutations from the trunk of that tree, that family tree, the mutations that are literally found in every cell. I don't want to just kill a branch. And so when we assess the mutations and design the vaccine, that aspect of which part of the family tree does the mutation come from is a component of how we select the mutations. And if we get it right, and we're, we're able to correctly identify multiple elements from the trunk of the tree, then in principle, we can kill all tumor cells. And then you're done. And that's the, that's the goal. You want to just have a, an intensive period of therapy where we hope that that our immune therapy is literally killing every tumor cell in the body, every one, so that you then stop treatment after some period of time, whether it's six months, 12 months, 18 months, we don't really know yet, but you stop it and you're completely healthy. That's where we want to be. And as I say, there's evidence now that, that with some of the newer drugs in melanoma, we get to that point where you are essentially functionally cured. What we're trying to see is obviously whether we can accomplish that for more patients using this vaccine-based approach. It's too early to know whether we can, but that's the goal. And, and picking mutations from the trunk of the family tree is, is a key element of, that, uh, of, of achieving that goal.
0: Well, unbelievably, we're now switching from cancer vaccines back to COVID vaccines. And we're not done yet. Uh, You know, it's like, no, we're not just going down every six months and every year getting another booster or whatever it is. And uh, Gritstone has received uh, a very interesting contract from BARDA. If you don't know that, that's the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority of the U.S. government. That part of the federal government is the one that gets it's out there. It's it's funding everything right at the frontier. We need this. We need this. Maybe we could get this done. Uh, And it's like, why is it out there now funding COVID vaccines and funding you? What is the idea there?
1: The the work that we've done is really putting T cells at the forefront of vaccine development. And if we turn our attention to viral infections, which obviously is, is the relevant topic here, If you think about your natural immune response to a viral infection, it has two elements. You have antibodies. And of course, we're all familiar with those. And antibodies are little proteins that bind to the virus as soon as it hits your body. So they can bind to it in solution. So the virus lands in your nose, let's say, and it's sitting there sort of in the mucus, in the lining of your nose. And you have antibodies in that mucus. And the antibodies bind to the virus and neutralize it so that it's rendered functionally useless. And it's cleared. So that's the first wave of defense. Antibodies are very important and obviously, as we've seen, very effective. However, occasionally the virus is going to kind of get past that first wave of defense and it'll enter a cell. And once it's inside the cell, it's invisible to antibodies. Antibodies only operate outside cells. So once the virus makes it inside the cell, it is safe. You know, it's like some. Action movie where you make it inside the house or whatever, and finally you slam the door and you're, ah, oh, phew, I can breathe a sigh of relief. Well, that's the virus once it's inside your cell. It is now, uh, has escaped the reach of antibodies. And this is where the second limb of the immune system kicks in, and these are T cells. And T cells are designed to recognize virally infected cells and kill them. So effectively, the T cell is able to look inside the cell and figure out if there's something foreign in there. And if there is, it'll kill that cell. It's kind of how it works. Most vaccines essentially have ignored the T cell contribution to the immune response. And they've ignored it for a variety of not terribly good reasons, partly because understanding T cells is hard, measuring T cells is hard, and their contribution to protection has been unclear for those reasons. And the good news is that actually antibodies can do a great job. And we've seen the benefits of all of that through the COVID pandemic. But what has become very clear is that antibody immunity is fragile because the antibody binds to this spike protein that keeps mutating. And we all know this. and We've seen these different variants of SARS-CoV-2 forming, and it ch- they change the spike protein so that the antibodies that bound to the original strain don't bind to the new strain. And that renders those antibodies essentially useless. What makes, what makes T cells particularly interesting is that T cells can recognize any part of the virus, and there are bits of the virus that just don't change over time, probably because they have to be very fixed in their structure and sequence, because their function is really critical for the virus to be able to operate. And so there are these constraints on certain genes that mean they just can't change. And it turns out that some of those genes that don't change, the jargon is conserved genes. Some of the conserved genes contain really good targets for T cells. So in 2020, we sort of started thinking about this. Obviously, kudos to Moderna and BioNTech. They jumped on the pandemic, moved really fast with their nice platforms, and really changed, changed our destinies, which was awesome. But obviously, our job is to innovate and say, okay, well, they did a great job. Can we do better? And so that's really the way we approach this problem. We started thinking about T cells and we started thinking about these conserved genes that create T cell targets. And so we designed a vaccine that has the spike gene, just like uh, the, the BioNTech, Pfizer, and the Moderna products. So we make antibodies just like they do, but we also include bits of these, uh, of these conserved other genes from within the virus to drive a T cell response. And we've, we've been testing that over the last uh, couple of years in humans, in phase one studies, those first in human studies, what we've shown is that, um, and we had some data at a big meeting just last week, so I can give you the latest and greatest. What we've shown is that at pretty low doses, so typically around 10 micrograms of vaccine, and that compares with typically 50 micrograms of the, of the regular mRNA vaccines, um, we're able to, to generate really good immune responses, both on the antibody side and on the T cell side. On the antibody side, we make good antibody levels. And what's super interesting is that they seem to persist for at least 12 months, which is very different from the profile of antibodies generated by mRNA vaccines, which come up nicely, but then they fade away quite quickly. And by about six months, generally, the antibody levels have dropped down to below where they may be necessary for protection. And obviously, that's partly driving the need for boost vaccinations that that are obviously a little challenging. So with our product, and I'll go into why it's different in a second, we're able to see persistence of antibodies for at least 12 months. And we see these T cell responses to those additional regions of the virus that I've described. And all of this is done with a safety profile that seems to look very similar to, to that of the mRNA vaccines. Now, we've only dosed about 400 and so subjects, so you know, these conclusions obviously are still relatively preliminary, but the data are interesting enough that, that BARDA, as you say, uh, picked up on this, and as part of their project NextGen, which is about trying to develop next-generation vaccines, they identified us as, as an entity that they wanted to work with. So what we use in our vaccine is a, is a form of RNA called self-amplifying mRNA. So it's, it's similar to the mRNA vaccines. They encode spike protein in the, in the vaccine. And we encode that, plus we have those conserved gene regions I mentioned. But we also have a copying enzyme. And this is the bit that does the self-amplification. And so when you inject one of our vaccines, the copying enzyme starts making copies of the virally-derived sequences. And that means that the viral uh, targets persist within your immune system for longer. And that's probably what drives the extended duration of the antibodies that we observe. And we're generating this T cell response to those other regions. And if the T cell response is good, in principle, that should drive variant-proof immunity meaning that even though spike keeps changing and you know, you have to reformulate the spike-based vaccines, if you've got cons- immunity against those conserved regions, that should protect you from getting sick from SARS-CoV-2. So that's the idea behind Project NextGen. It's all about obviously trying to, to improve on, on the first-generation vaccines. And the reason I think they chose us is because we've got a product that, in principle, gives you durable, variant-proof immunity. And we're going to be testing that, if all goes well, in a 10,000-subject randomized study comparing our product directly with one of the mRNA vaccines. So it's a head-to-head, and it's going to be measuring over 12 months the clinical infection rate across the two uh, populations. So very important and an exciting study.
0: It's so signature, BARDA, too. Hey, we're going to do this. Now we're going to do it big, and we're going to do it now. (laughs) Get going. So uh, very exciting. Very exciting.
1: Yeah, they've, they've moved incredibly fast. I mean, we they've been great partners for us. And uh, yeah, we're very excited about what next year holds.
0: Well, in this interview, which is a, is a real visionary interview to me, as uh, we've talked about cancer and vaccines, we've talked about COVID viruses and vaccines, but there's a whole infectious disease area. There's, you know, of any kind. It could be bacterial, as an example. Um, what is your sort of consolidated vision of vaccines you clearly must have a, a big vision here yeah
1: I I believe that immunology lies at the heart of a lot of human disease and there are many people that agree with me obviously um, and if that's true then modifying the immune response in principle is a is an obvious Avenue to to very effective therapies so we've started in we started in cancer and as I've said the 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 promise of, of cancer immunotherapy is cure, and i've been working in the cancer field for about twenty years now, and much of that time I was a chief medical officer, you know pretty close to the physicians and the patients and you know it's it sort of I, I worked on very uh, successful drugs, but most of them bought temporary time for patients and I'm just ever mindful that there are Nobody is is really looking, you know, n- n- cancer gets people young, um, but it, it's always bad. No one wants to die, obviously. and but, but particularly for me, I guess it's being motivated by young people with cancer where promising them or hoping to give them six months or 12 months of additional life is just woefully inadequate. And and I reached a point where I just wasn't happy to keep working on drugs like that. I wanted to try and do something that would really move the needle. So it's a sort of high-risk, high-return proposition, but you know, I don't do it blindly. I do it because I think we know enough to have a decent shot with what I've described. And if we're successful, it will open the door, obviously, for, to really change or continue changing the paradigm. You know, others before have really brought immunotherapy into the forefront of cancer treatment, which is awesome. And Nobel Prizes have been appropriately awarded. And we're trying to build on that and extend that. So treating advanced disease, treating localized disease, and maybe even preventing, that's where we will be, hopefully, in 20 years' time. And that will be a magnificent uh, outcome. In infectious disease, I think we're trying to bring the, that T cell biology, that T cell thinking, into the into the mix in a way that it hasn't been hitherto, and I think we're the worse for it. I think there's an opportunity for us to make better vaccines um, that will potentially impact human health around the world. And we work with the Gates Foundation and CEPI. and so we're very mindful of the importance of uh, of, of vaccines in you know in every population, but particularly in low and middle income countries where these are really transformative um, interventions that can, that can modify, um, you know, so many lives um, in, the, in any country, but particularly those low and middle income countries where people still die from from treatable and preventable diseases. So driving to better vaccines through those partnerships, as well as, of course, in, in uh, the higher income countries is is a worthy goal. What we haven't touched yet, but, but I hope it's just a yet, is autoimmune disease, which is, the, you know, another big class of diseases that that affect huge numbers of humans and and really can impact health. And, you know, you don't think of vaccines as as treating autoimmune disease. You think of autoimmunity as too much immunology, which some level it is. But of course, there are ways to subvert and, and modify the immune response. Whether we call them vaccines or not, I don't know. But there are ways to think about doing what we're doing in different ways to drive different immune responses that actually control autoimmune disease so, for example, there's a population of T cells you know T cells are very important, very interesting. There's a population of T cells that actually damp down immune responses. so there are people now thinking about well can can I harness that in a way that's directed can i uh, can I treat an autoimmune disease in a selective fashion? So all I do is blunt the nasty you know toxic autoimmune response, but I leave the healthy antiviral antibacterial immune responses untouched. That obviously is a worthy goal, um, and that's kind of bringing it back to where we started, right? We talked about organ transplantation, You know, and I used to be a practicing nephrologist doing kidney transplantation where the goal was, um, for, at an immunologic level, was can we give you donor-specific tolerance? In other words, you get a kidney transplant. Can I make you tolerant of that transplant specifically? But keep your immune responses to all viruses and bacteria totally intact. Can I do that? And there's reasons to believe we might be able to accomplish that. And so, the, you know, that's the future we're driving towards. And uh, you know, the basic work we've been doing in immunology, and then in applied immunology and vaccinology, hopefully is going to help us, you know, take steps towards those those worthy goals.
0: Well, Dr. Allen, it's been a tremendous pleasure. And and, and let me just say, you are welcome on uh, Biotech Nation anytime. You're, you're absolutely, call us up and we'll, we'll be there. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, we've
1: got data coming. So yeah, maybe maybe it'll either be sad data or, or glorious data. So we'll, we'll, we'll see whether, uh, whether we have the need to re-engage. But obviously, I'd be delighted to. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to come and speak with you more. It's been my pleasure.
0: Dr. Andrew Allen is the president, CEO, and co-founder of Gritstone Bio. More information is available on the web at gritstonebio.com. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotechnation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.